Uh, how many of you guys are prank people? Who likes pranks? Anybody like to do pranks? Anyone? A couple people? I can't, I can't stand pranks. I hate them. I hate them with a passion, especially the scare pranks. Um, I've had people, either my family or, uh, or people that I've worked with on church staff or whatever, that uh, they, like, they say, well, well, if somebody does a prank to you, uh, do you prank them back? And I'm like, no, I hate pranks. I'm not going to do pranks. So they well, what do you do when somebody pranks you? And I just say, I emotionally freeze you out. I'm just, that's what I will do with you. You and I will no longer have an open relationship. It won't be good. It won't be healthy. That's what I do. Because I can't stand it. It's, getting scared is the worst. My kids have a, my youngest kids have a, a running game. They're constantly always trying to hide from each other. And they're trying to pull us into like, dad, don't say like, I'm, I'm going to right here and I'm going to scare my sister, scare my brother, and so, um, and then I'll just stare at them just so that when, our, when one of my kids come by so that they know what's about to happen, all right? Because nobody likes to be scared. Nobody likes to be pranked and scared. It's not fun. Uh, uh, it might be funny, at, certainly at other people's expenses, but, um, but nobody enjoys that. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that idea that something is around the corner ready to come after you. It's kind of scary. Uh, it's not enjoyable, and that is the kind of language that the Bible is actually going to give to the idea of sin around the corner ready to attack. Even when you can't see it, might even not be aware of it. That's what we're gonna look at in Genesis chapter four this morning. We're gonna get a picture of dueling desires. We're going to get an insight into a battle that goes on and rages inside of every human being for this issue of desire. And so I want to take a look into it and ask the question, okay, God, would you show us what is true about desire? Genesis chapter four, let me set this up for you before we go there. Sin has, Adam and Eve have chosen to go their own way and to be their own gods. Uh, they transgressed sin, enter, sin entered into the world and then it permeates all of Humanity, it permeates actually all of creation. It's all subjected to the futility of it, including their own children. And so the first two children that we're introduced to are Cain and Abel. Uh, these are the children of Adam and Eve, and we're going to find that sin is looking for an opportunity to strike. And so that's where we're at in Genesis chapter four, verse three. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, uh, even getting into this story, there's, there's so much here. We don't really know. The scripture actually doesn't take time to tell us exactly why Cain's offering is not 
isn't accepted in the way that Abel's is. There's a ton of conjecture. There's all kinds of commentaries on this. But what we actually get to stand in as we look at the word of God is that, it, it, that the Lord has chosen not to talk about that because that's not the actual primary issue that's going on. The primary issue is not whether or not Cain's, uh, why, why Cain's sacrifice wasn't acceptable to the Lord. What the Lord wants to begin to show is there's a heart issue going on that he wants to be able to deal with. The debate isn't about what was taking place in, uh, with Cain and his offering. The debate is actually about what's going on in his heart. And there's something amiss and the point is to be able to look at it because the Lord wants to say, how will you respond when something is broken inside? God sees something that's broken here, but God doesn't leave him alone. This is what's beautiful. There's something broken inside of Cain, in his heart, and God doesn't leave him alone. He's right there to pastor him and lead him and shepherd Cain through this because Cain is angry. He wanted to get away with something that was lesser. And the Lord loved him too much to not talk to him and speak to him on this issue. God had desire for Cain for his heart to be healed. And so he reaches out and he says, let your heart be upright. When it says to do well, the idea here is uprightness. Let your heart Be upright. The indication that whatever is wrong with the offering was actually a heart matter. That's at the center of this. But here is sin crouching down around looking for the opportunity to pounce. Lethal. Twisted. And it's coming after Cain. This is how, by the way, sin plays the game. This is how sin plays the game. Ready to pounce, its desire is for you. Some of your Bibles would say contrary to your meaning, actually towards you. This is how this works, and therein lies the battle. God has desires for you and has put desires in you, and sin has desire for you and is crafting its desires inside of you. That's the battle that's going on. We can't get away from the fact that we are meant to have a full life of desire. I think oftentimes the narrative in church or even among Christians is, is you need to get rid of desire so that you can follow and serve the Lord. But that's actually not the narrative in scripture. Not get rid of desire, but actually have the deepest desires you were created and crafted to have and to walk in full in your life, in my life. Psalm 73 It says, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. The Bible is not saying you need to wash yourself of desires. The Bible is actually saying be full of rich, real desire. Let it have its way in use. So what is desire? What is desire, right? Then desire is the hunger that you have for the fullness of life and the zeal that is gonna point you towards it, make you move. You wanna know what desire is? It's I want fullness of life. 
and the zeal that will push you and I to go search it out and find it. You and I as humans can't repent of that. We were made to be that way. This is who God is. God is a God of desire. He's made us in his image. And the desire of God is for you and I to live out fully who we were made to be, which are those who delight ourselves in God, and to do what we were made to do, which is reflect that delighting to the world around us. This is who we are. And all the things that are outside of this will often seek to steal or destroy the full desire we were made by we were made to have by sin. Sin is the actual opposite of this, right? Sin's desire is its own satisfaction, the opposite of delighting in God. It actually says, delight in yourself. That's the crouching thing. I love that picture that God gave to us in this text here to give us a picture that you are meant to be a full-hearted person, rich in desire, longing for full life and zeal to go pursue it. And sin is looking to say, don't look for it in God, look for it in you. Have it, find it, experience it in you. It's trying to take and mar and press down and twist the desire that you and I were actually planned for because we were planned for amazing things. There's an old, old, uh, ancient movie uh, called Chariots of Fire. Doubt anyone has actually in this room seen it. I don't know, man, it's old. I, I saw it years and years ago, but there is a quote in this movie that is like moves you. And the story is about an Olympic runner named Eric Little. And his heart was sold out to God. But he was the fastest dude on the planet at the time. And it was a huge story. The reason that the story exists because he was so sold out to the Lord, he would not race on the Sabbath. He was so dedicated to the Sabbath that he wouldn't race. He wouldn't like, I'll push it over a day. He was like, no, that's where his conviction was. And it just so happened that the Olympic final for the gold medal was on Sunday. And he would not race. He was going to win. <clears throat> and you get to hear his story and his journey. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, one of the things when he's remarking about that why he races and why he runs, he says, I love this. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. How beautiful. This is an incredible picture. You and I could look at racing and we might go, that doesn't have any eternal value. What are the Olympics? What's sports? What's literature? What are those things? It's all kind of empty, right? It's not eternal. And the Lord's saying, no, you don't understand. Everything you do when you do with desire for me is eternal. Some of you are math people. 
geniuses maybe. You can see numbers. My son is one of those. Sees numbers. Freaks me out. I don't understand it. All right, he just, he knows stuff. He's taking calculus too, I think. I don't know. He's far beyond me in intelligence. That's what I'd say. Thank God for that. Some of you are musical and artistic. You're creative and you see things that no one else sees. Some of you have a knack for leadership and administration. Some of you are gifted in overseeing and management of people and governance. And some of you get finances and resources. You understand it. Some of you are builders and craftsmen. You like to create things out of nothing. Some of you are teachers and equippers. There's just loads and loads of gifts and talents and abilities and callings in this room alone. It's unbelievable. And God's design is to give you these things so that we walk in desire. We take what God has been, what is given to us to use to make much of his name, whether it's running races or teaching math classes or running finances or overseeing people or whatever it is. That's what we were meant for. Desire to be great at the things we do for the namesake and glory of God. God's placed these things here to bring glory to his name. And yet there's something pressing you and I all the time. And it's telling us you're not enough. You're not enough. You don't do enough and you don't belong. Meaning, listen, if you don't eat from this tree, you will miss out. It's what the enemy says. I Meaning if you don't have that, then you won't be full. And if you're not like that, you won't be full. And you don't possess this, you won't be full. If you don't have that, then you're not going to be full. And the lie goes on and on. And all of a sudden, we start to desire for things that are empty and broken from the lie. Every one of us are enticed to believe it, myself included, just like Cain. And that's what sin is. It lies and tells you that how you were made and what you were made to do are not enough. It's the lie that whatever God says is less and that whatever you say is more. Psalm 10, verse three says, for the wicked boasts of the desires of the soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in his pride, uh, in the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. You see the dichotomy here. The Lord's building you and I up with desire for fullness of life and sin is crouching at the door to say, yeah, you can desire, but not for that, for this. Have this. So we will have desires. We're meant to have desire in this life. We're meant to step out and do beautiful and amazing things. It's what we were designed for. 
But many experience, I'd say all experience, the disordering of our desires because sin is crouching at the door, ready to sabotage what is full and right and true. God says it this way. Throughout the scriptures, take what's right and let it have its way in you. Philippians 4, whatever's true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know anyone that would look at that list and go, I don't want any of that. In fact, I think if we were to able to taste and see and receive and walk in those things, I think we would go, oh my gosh, that's life. That's fullness. To walk with honor and nobility and purity and whatever's meant to be commendable, excellent, all of those things. There's an invitation from the Lord to ponder what your desire, what your life might be if you would desire and hunger after what you've been created for. But conversely, there are things that are broken and Jesus wants to give clarity to all of our hearts about the desires that end up being broken. Mark chapter seven, he's speaking to his disciples and he, first he calls all the people, verse 14. He calls the people to him and again, he said to them, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going in him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Effectively, he's talking about, uh, he's talking to the religious authorities, talking about, well, you can't eat this and you can't do that and you can't have that. And if you do those things, then you're broken. And God's going, nothing from the outside coming in going to defile you. When he entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about this saying or this parable. And he said to them, then... Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And all the people who love bacon said, amen. (laughs) That's just like a paraphrase. It's not in the Bible there, but. And when he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person Jesus is just waving his hand saying, Sir, Adam, you were meant to have desire, but there are those that have been hijacked by sin inside. 
not on the outside, on the inside. And he's saying that, number one, because from the beginning, Jesus makes it clear there are inward desires that defile us. This is for all of humanity. And it almost sounds hopeless, by the way, because so many of us, if we were taking down our church face for a moment, could look at the things that Jesus just described here in Mark chapter seven and go, I've, I've wrestled with those things. I've struggled with these things. I've had foolishness in me. And we could go on and on. And so Jesus wants to say, there are some things inside of you that are not ordered in terms of how I've created you to be. But secondarily, we're actually going to get to see here that we live in a world where the argument is if I have desires that I've had my whole life or have taken deep root in me, then they must be valid. And Jesus is just pastorally and lovingly waving his hands saying, no, sir, no, ma'am, you may have desires inside of you that you've had for a long time, or you might even say from birth, but they are not from your father. They are from sin crouching at the door ready to strike. And often people say, well, because I have these desires, it must be who I am. It's my identity. And Jesus is just pastorally and lovingly saying, daughter, or son, no. No, I'm, they're actually robbing from what you were designed and created to be. Yeah, you need, we need to understand the nature of desire. We weren't supposed to live apart from desire. There is righteous desire and there is broken desire. And Jesus is just lovingly inviting us in to understand. He's saying that we will experience desires for something good, but it can easily be defiled by sin crouching at the door. I love in uh, the book, Voice of the Heart by Dr. Chip Dottie, it gives examples of ways that we experience this. He says, your hunger for beauty becomes a lust for sex. Your hunger for truth becomes the dogma of control or rigidity. Your hunger for nobility becomes an arrogant search for causes that feed your ego. And your hunger for justice becomes a demand that others be conformed to your will. See these beautiful desires that are meant to, that we're meant to carry and hold. They end up getting twisted and turned by sin crouching at the door. It's taking something that's beautiful and glorious and good and turning it into something that actually is about us. That's what I think is so fascinating about that list of examples from that book. That's actually saying we take the beautiful things we were made for and it gets twisted so that it's actually about us. Jesus came to set captives free. 
the point of Jesus, God in the flesh, is to actually set us free. From what? Well, they hoped that he would come and set them politically free. That's what they wanted. They were hoping he would turn the political tables and drive out the Roman occupation so that they could have, quote unquote, their freedom to be Israel. That's what they wanted. And what Jesus wanted to say is, no, your freedom to be Israel or the people of God starts right here. This is where freedom is lived out, no matter what the government says or does. This is the place for freedom to be lived. But we have to acknowledge what God says is right and rich and pure and beautiful and what is stained and broken and defiling. And he's asking us to trust him because he's our maker. You've been designed. We've been designed. He wanted us to be free. He wanted to go into a man or woman's heart. He wanted to go into it. That's what's amazing. Come into our heart and free us from bondage. And free us from desire that is broken so that we can be made to be who God made us to be and to do what God made us to do. All those beautiful gifts, all those beautiful resources, all the beautiful things that God has given to us. But he also knew that this battle over our desires would be fierce. So he draws draws a line in the sand to say there is a right way, there is a right path. This is how it works. In Matthew 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. Here, do you hear the invitation? Here's the invitation from the God of the universe. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Let me say that again. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so Jesus is actually inviting us into something that's actually not going to be popular. That's actually what he's saying. My words to you won't be popular with the general world around you. It wasn't popular 2,000 years ago. Church, it ain't popular today. But he is inviting us down the narrow road to trust him that not everything that we feel is right but that we've got to be aligned with the way we were designed and made. He's gonna ask us to align our desires with him and not the other way around. Meaning this, we don't get to experience and have desire and then to tell Jesus to get on board. The nature of the gospel is actually the nature of surrender. To say, I don't get to call the shots anymore. I don't get to call the shots. 
but you do. And Jesus says, I want you to hear this. John 14, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one will come to the Father except through me. And it's a beautiful rallying cry in a, among a people that love and follow Jesus, but it is a call and an invitation to those who are not. It is a pastoral, caring, loving expression to say, if you have gone your own way and let your own desires sit on the throne of your heart to rule over you, understand this, I am the way, not you, and I am the life, not you, and I am the truth, not you. So come into alignment. Jesus never, ever compromised the truth while showing his love to those around him. Never, ever. He held the truth and then he invited people to come and receive it. How incredibly loving was Jesus? He's undefeated. He's undefeated. He is loved greater than any of us could ever possibly imagine. And we're gonna see, by the way, in the weeks ahead, exactly how Jesus stands for truth and yet loves people well. He is, by the way, the example of all examples. We're going to have some weeks ahead where we're going to talk about some things that will feel contrary to the way that the world has aligned itself. And what we're going to see is Jesus standing on truth and yet inviting people with a gracious heart into relationship. Jesus loved sinners better than anyone. And you and I know that because that's who you and I were. He loved sinners, but he wanted them to be healed and he wanted them to be forgiven and he wanted them to be set free. He would quite literally die so that everything that has been disordered inside of us, every longing, every hunger, every desire that has been disordered gets made right gets made whole, gets, made, gets purified and redeemed and restored in him. And so the question is then, what do we do with the things that are broken inside of us? Because the truth is this, you've been a follower for, of Jesus for your whole life. I have been. I got saved like in the hospital room, all right? Just coming out ready to go. I get it. I've been in church a long time. I can be the first to tell you sin is constantly crouching at the door, ready to disorder righteous desire. It's a fight. It's a battle. And there is a call for the people of God to say, no, Lord, not my way, your way. That's the battle we take on. It's actually the call for every follower of Jesus I get to say that here, but the truth is, is if you're a human in here, you've wrestled also when desire 
when the sin comes to try to corrupt and destroy and defile us with its desire. Its desire is for you, toward you, contrary to you. That's what all the different versions say. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, first and foremost, we drop the facade of religion. We drop the facade of churchiness. And we ask Jesus to heal and restore with humility. That's what happens in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells just a quick story. Tells a parable is some who trusted themselves that they were righteous. There it is. Hear this. They trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two, two men went up into the temple to pray, and one is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Effectually, what he's saying is one is a super clean pastor with a pastor face, and one is an extortionist. Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is how we are made right with humility. You want to be made right? It's with humility because we're not going to walk into these subjects that we'll be talking about over the next several weeks with a self-righteous, judgmental, overbearing, heavy-handed religious spirit. We're not doing it. We're not going to do it. We're going to be a church who first comes to God as people who beat our chest and ask for mercy and for goodness and forgiveness. If you're in here and you are a follower of Jesus, it's because you have at some point in time, the light bulb came on and you said, I don't have it. I can't do this. I am broken, irrevocably broken and in need. So we won't look at the world and talk about all of the brokenness out in the world with our arms folded and our religious uh, 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 armor all put up on us, trying to act like we've got it all figured out. No, we're going to come with humility and say, God, have mercy on me, sinner first. We're not going to look at the speck in the eye of the world without dealing with the log that's right here. Because we're going to talk about some challenging and difficult things. But we aren't doing it with a whole bunch of pride and arrogance. We're going to say, God, have mercy on me. Here in just a moment, we're going to be able to take communion together. It is that thing that we've been able to do for with brothers and sisters for the last 2,000 years. And what does the taking of communion say? Oh God, you had to die on my behalf so that I could be free. So that we don't come with a spirit of judgmentalism, 
And we don't come with a spirit of a religion pointing the finger at the dirty world out there. We say, first God, cleanse me and make me whole. And we come, we come and we say, thank you, God, for your body that was broken. And thank you, God, that your blood was shed for me. You guys stand with me. I'm going to ask our team to come up. We're just going to take a moment to reflect, ready our hearts. I want to invite you in this. If you're a follower of Jesus, then I want to invite you to come and take and receive these elements. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you could just hang and watch and view and see. But what we're about to do is this. We're going to come and receive these elements. We're going to receive the bread, which is the body of Christ that was broken. And we're going to receive the cup, which is the blood of Christ that was shed to give us a new covenant and to make us whole and clean. And these acts are the declaration to God, whatever has been disordered in me, God, you make right. You make whole. I can't do it on my own. This is not my battle. Thank God. It's not my battle. You don't have to fight it today. In fact, you actually get to receive victory again. You receive the body of Christ broken for you. You receive the, the, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you and I, we get to walk in fullness. So Lord, this is what we're asking. We're making our heart ready. Would you just offer to the Lord anything in you that you sense is broken? Maybe a wrong desire, foolishness, pride, arrogance. Maybe there's an addiction you're wrestling with. Area of sin that just seems to be pressing you. Arrogance that is kind of like an aura around you. Whatever it is, would you just offer it to the Lord and say, God, I release again to the work of the cross the things that are broken in me. I lay down my pride. I lay down my arrogance. I lay down my conceit. I lay down my fears. I lay down my anxieties. Would you make your heart ready? You'll come down the middle aisle to receive the bread and the cup. And you're free to take the bread and cup whenever you're ready. Our team is going to worship over us. And in fact, invite us into worship that after you've received the elements, you can just jump right in to worshiping with our team. Once you receive the elements, you can go back around to the side and back to your seat. Again, you don't have to feel any pressure to take communion this morning if you're not in a hard place that's ready.
But if you're asking for God to make you whole and alive again and to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, becoming our death so that we could have life, then come and receive. Father, we thank you that you've done that. We thank you that you've made us whole. We thank you that your body was broken and your blood was shed. We honor you. We bless you. We receive again purity and righteousness and wholeness, not from our perfect record, but from your perfect record. Your perfection given to us, we receive it again. In the name of Jesus. Amen.